Good morning. My name is Brian Wright, and I am the district superintendent for the Northern Plains District of the Evangelical Free Church, which uh, Salem is a part of. And I have been uh, given the opportunity to come and speak with you this morning and bring this morning's message. Uh, before I do that, though, I just thought I'd give you a, just a quick word about um, the district, give you a little bit of information about kind of what's happening across this Northern Plains District, this family that you are a part of. Uh, there are really three things I talk about when I, I come to churches that we really focus on as a district, the kind of things that we lean into. And the first one of those is helping to have healthy churches and healthy pastors. And a, a big part of that is helping churches have pastors, which has been a challenging thing over the last year. Uh, we have a, a number of churches across our district that are looking for pastors, and that's getting to be a, a harder and a more challenging thing. I was just reading a study uh, in this last week that said that the length of time that it takes for a pastoral search is, is hitting record longs. Uh, it was, you know, used to be maybe it was a year, maybe a year and a half, then it was a year and a half to two years, and now the average search is, uh, is exceeded two years plus. Uh, between pastors for pastoral searches. It's getting harder to find people to fill pulpits. And so that's one of the things we do as a district is, one, leaning into helping churches find those. But I think increasingly part of my role is leaning into thinking how as, uh, how as a church can we help raise people up to fill those roles? Uh, one of the challenges, of course, is when you go to advertise, a lot of people, uh, literally, you, they get a chance, we have a thing for, in the free church where they can uh, identify what districts they would like to go to. I, I do see profiles once in a while, and they have identified literally every other district in the country except the Northern Plains. Um, look outside, and maybe you can understand why. Um, but uh, so one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to work in raising up our own. Those who we have come out of our own midst are the ones I think most likely to come back and to serve our churches. So how do we do that? We have to lean into uh, encouraging our young people to think about stepping into uh, vocational ministry as, as a path for them and as God calling them to do that. And that's something uh, I get to share with the, the students about. I'm going to talk to them at our, our at districts and the youth conference that's coming up and at camp, but to get to try to invite them into those things. But also, it's people across our district who are maybe in uh, the middle of a career change, a midlife career change, and there may be something has transpired in their life that maybe they felt a tug earlier in their life, but it just wasn't the right timing. But maybe now that opportunity is there for them. How do we come alongside and equip them and train them and provide for them so they could be able to step into those kinds of roles? And how do we uh, help them find places and all of those kinds of things. That's one of the kinds of things we're working on is helping churches to find pastors. And we do have a number of churches across uh, our district that like I said that are looking. We've got seven right now that are without pastors. So uh, that is a big challenge for us in the district at this moment. Another thing that we do is we build partnerships. We help churches connect with each other and to work with each other. The big thing coming up on that front is we do have our district conference, which is coming up in February. You guys hosted it last year, and thank you very much. That was a, a great time that we had here with all of you. And we are looking forward to another great time. This year it is at Grace Point in Bismarck. We'd love to have as many of you interested to come and be part of that. One of the new things we're doing this year is we're starting the conference with lunch. Everybody's going to eat together or have lunch at the church together. But we're going to break them up into affinity groups. So you have a chance to get to connect with somebody else who has the same kind of interests in church that you do, whether you're interested in, in children's ministry or worship or adult studies or your board members or uh, facilities or whatever that is. You get a chance to go and sit down and have lunch with them and say, hey, uh, we're working on this. You, have you done this? Or how did you work on that? How did you resolve this? What do you do about this? Or say, hey, we got a great idea. We did this and it worked fantastic for us. Whatever that is, you have a chance to kind of connect with each other and do that. So that's a new part of the conference. We'd love to have you be a part of that. There's more information. You can go to our website, uh, npdefca.com. 
uh, and there's lots of information there about the conference. The last thing that we do is multiplication. And we want to start new churches and see, help churches grow and expand in their communities as well. And so we're excited to continue to see growth in our church in Castleton that we started uh, just a little over a year and a half ago, uh, that they had their official launch, and they are doing really well. We are working with the core group there. Uh, just uh, in December, we started uh, with some training with them out of our national office on how to be focused on reaching your community and how to do that really well and very intentionally. And they, and they are the first in the country beta test for this uh, kind of training coming out of our, our denomination. So we are really excited for them to be doing that. And we have another new church plant that is getting started. This is the first church visit I've gotten to do since we approved this. So I get, you're the first ones to get to hear this. We have a church plant uh, that is going to be starting in Hazen, North Dakota. Uh, so we are excited for that one. Um, so more news to come about that as we get the details in place for that. But those are some of the things that we are doing across uh, the district and the work that we are involved in. Uh, how can you be a part of that? The big one is just be praying for us. Uh, be praying for our district. Be praying for our district staff. We've got uh, Steve Oswald who works with our missions. We have Brandon Belay who works with our student ministries. We have uh, Mike Lundberg who works with our church multiplication. Just be praying for those guys and as we do that work across the district. And to remind you to do that, we're in the right season for this. I, I, um, I, I, what can I pass out to help remind you to pray for the district? Well, we have NPD ice scrapers. Um, if you're missing an ice scraper, if it's gone missing, you need another one for the other car, I got a bunch of these on the table out there. Grab one of these on your way out. We'd love to have you pick one of those up. There's some pens and tablets and stuff out there too. Grab one of those on the way out. But pray for us. Uh, connect with us. We'd love to see you at the conference. Go check out the website. There's lots of information there about things that are happening in the district. You can sign up for our newsletter there uh, as well. And just to say thank you for the giving and the support that, uh, that you do give to our district. We rely on the support of our district churches, um, for what they give to allow us to do this work, and for uh, the donations of individuals that help us to uh, supplement well, the, that there's a little bit of a gap between what we get from churches and what we really need to do this work, and we have a lot of great individual donors that help make that up. So if that's one of you and you're one of those individual donors this morning, thank you as well uh, for your support that helps us make possible what we do. So with that, I'm going to turn to the Word of God, and we're going to look at James chapter 3 today. If you have uh, your Bibles with you, you want to open it on your phone or tablet, um, James chapter 3. And as I read, um, as I've been a pastor in my churches over the years, it's been my habit to ask people to stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you'd be willing to do that and you're able to stand, I would invite you to do that as we read together. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put boots into the mouths of horses so that they obey us and guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds, and they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people 
who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You may be seated. So I don't know um, how many of you have ever been a part of an organization that really spends time talking to its members about how they talk and what they say and how they communicate and what kinds of things are appropriate or not. There are some of those organizations out there, and then I've been around a couple of them. Uh, one of them, uh, I was, uh, our family was fortunate enough to host an exchange student uh, for a time when we were in Minnesota um, through Rotary. And that meant I got to go to some Rotary meetings. I got any, any Rotarians in the room? Do you got anybody? No? All right. Rotary is a great organization. Uh, we had a great time with those meetings. Every, at every one of their meetings, they recite what they call their four-way test for what is going to be said in those meetings. And this is what they adhere to for everything that is presented there. Four things. Number one, is it true? Good thing to ask. Number two, is it fair to all concerned? Number three, will it build goodwill and better friendships? Number four, will it be beneficial to all concerned? That's not a bad set of criteria to think about what you say. I think there's some biblical backing for those, even though Rotary is, is not certainly a Christian organization, but I think there's some biblical backing there. Another organization that I am a part of now that uh, talks a lot about how you speak and how you communicate to others is uh, just... Uh, this last, back in November, I started a, a new little role in my life. I always like to have ways that I can be involved and connect to our community and, and be in, involved in helping with people. It just helps to meet families and connect with, with others and have a chance to, to really be a witness with them. That's what you've been talking about. And so I became the head coach of the Valley City Sharks swim team. Um, I taught swimming for a lot of years. I swam when I was in high school. I love doing that. And to do that, there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through with USA Swimming to be a coach and to be able to be on deck. And a lot of those videos were really aimed at trying to get across how, as a coach, you communicate with and interact with the athletes that you're working with in a way that helps to build them and encourage them, not just in the competence for what they're doing, but also in their character as a person. And really what they're aiming to try to get away from is the old school coach, right, that is just up there, you're doing it wrong, why aren't you doing it? They, they don't want you to do that anymore. Um, and probably with good reason that that's probably not a great way to do things anymore. So they really do care a lot about what we say and how we say it. Um, as much as those organizations might care about what you say and how you say it, God cares even more about how we as believers communicate with others, about what we say and how we say it. You've been talking about being witnesses in your series through Acts, and this really does connect to that, even though it's not directly out of that text. It does tie to that, because what we say and how we say it has a huge impact on our ability to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. We know this verse from John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, but you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The guy that I, I love reading a lot, and some of you know the name, uh, Paul David Tripp, and have read some of his books. 
uh, one that I was reading recently, he simply has this comment on that. He says, we should be recognized not only for the purity of our theology, but also the consistency of our love. We're going to reach people as witnesses. We need to understand our words reflect our faith. There's one thing, one big thing that I could communicate to you this morning. It is that our words reflect our faith. Our words reflect our faith. And there's a lot of verses that we could look at where we could see and where it talks about how important it is to think about what we say. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. A couple of other verses, and I don't think they've got them for up there, but um, Titus 2, 7 and 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Philippians 4, 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Our words are called reflect our faith. The words that are used to describe what our speech should be like are there. Gracious, seasoned with salt, love, purity, integrity, dignity, reasonableness. Only that which is good for building up. Now I want you to think for a moment. We're at the beginning of a new year and time we make decisions and resolutions about things we like to change. Maybe you'll reflect for a moment this morning is your speech, are those the words that would describe your speech as you interact with others? Are those the words that you would hear, that you would use to describe the communication that often goes on between people in our culture today? Reasonable, gracious, seasoned with salt, only that which is good for building up. I think if we are all honest, we would say we have a long way to go for our words to reflect our faith the way they fully should. And I say this, this is a, this is a dangerous sermon for me because just like any of you, this is an area where I can certainly struggle. And my family's sitting down here this morning and they're going to listen to me to say this and they're going to get back in the car with me today and they're going to go, oh yeah, dad, okay, now we're going to hold you to that. Um, this is a dangerous one. Because we can all succumb to these things. It's why I have actually in my office, there's a little wooden plaque I picked up along the way, and some of you have probably seen something like it. But I have it sit right behind me, and it's there every time I'm in my office. And it simply says this, it says, Lord, keep your arm on my shoulder and your hand over my mouth. That we would guard what we say. Because our words reflect our faith. We look at James now, and he's going to talk about why it is so important that we must control our speech. Our words reflect our faith, and, and we have to control it. And the first thing he says is we have to control it because it is the hardest 
of all the things we have that we might need to control or discipline ourselves in as followers of Jesus, he said, this is hardest. He says this, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. He says, if you can keep your tongue in line, you can keep everything else in line. I mean, it's kind of like you think about it. Maybe, maybe it's a New Year's resolution and you want to go on a diet and you want to maybe eat less of something or cut out something, maybe cut out the salt in your diet or cut out some other kind of food. That's a kind of a simple thing to do. You can clean house. You can get rid of the, the salty food out of your, your house. You can put the salt shaker away. You can take that all of your house. And then you're, you can kind of control that. You know what? This thing is always with you. You can't ever lay it aside and get away from it. And it's always connected to here or sometimes not, actually. Um, you can't get away from it. It takes a lot of intentionality to control what you say, to think about it, to measure your words. You can go back to Proverbs and talk about all of it about prudent speech, judicious speech, words that talk about how we control what we say. And how important it is that we do that. And that takes a lot of intentionality and work. And, and, and James says here, if you're able to do that, you can do all the rest because this is the hardest one. And I know it is because even in, in my setting, in, in what I'm doing, even in what I'm doing right now, you know, there are sometimes over 20 plus years of preaching that I've done, there have been some mornings and some Sundays when I have been up preaching and I have had, you know, that little thing that comes in the back of your head and kind of comes up here and then all of a sudden it's out there and you don't doggone it. How did that happen? And I've said stuff. I'm like, why did I say that? How did that come out of my mouth? And I've had to get back up in front of my congregation the next week and apologize for the fact that I said it. It's a hard thing to control. But if we give it attention, if we focus on it, he said the rest of it we can control too. It starts with the intention there. We control our speech because it is hardest. We control our speech because it sets the course. It sets the direction for where we are going. He talks about, uh, James talks about two examples there, about bridles in, in horses and bits in their mouth, and he talks about ships. Now, let's talk with horses for a minute. I don't know. Are, do we have horse people here? Are any of you horse people? You like riding horses? A, a few? Okay. I, I am not one of those people. Um, I have ridden horses because I love my daughters. And we were at father-daughter camp, and they want to ride horses. So dad's going to ride a horse with his daughters. And we're at family camp, and we're going to go ride horses. But dad's never been really very at ease on a horse. Because they put this bit in their mouth, and they give you these reins, and they tell you, you know, it's either a one-handed or two-handed, depending on how the horse has been trained. And you have the, if it's two-handed, you're, you're pulling this way. If it's one-handed, you're just going this way. And that that will direct the horse. And if you pull back, that the horse will stop. I don't believe them. That is a very large animal, and I really don't believe if I pull this back and they want to go that way, I really don't think pulling this back is going to prevent that from happening. They tell me it will. And, and to date, I've never had a horse run away on me, so maybe it does work better than I have confidence in. But you think that's what it takes to ride a horse, is you have to have confidence that that bit in their mouth is going to control their direction. Same is true for a rudder on a ship. It's a small part of the ship, but it sets the course you want to change where the ship is going, you turn the rudder and everything changes direction. It all goes a different way. I had a, a sailboat that I got from my grandfather when he passed away. And that sailboat 
sat in my backyard for 12 years and never went out on the water. Why? Because I got the boat and it had a mast and it had a sail and everything else, but we never could find the rudder. It was missing. We never could find the rudder. I could never find somewhere where I could buy one that would fit it. I never could find someone who could make me one that would fit it. So it sat in my backyard for, my backyard for 12 years and never sailed because it had no rudder. I couldn't control the direction. That bit, that rudder, that's very important for the direction that things go. The same thing is true of us. Our speech sets direction. I don't know how many of you have seen it, and I'm, I am not giving this as an endorsement or a recommendation that you go out and watch it, but I am aware of the storyline. There's a, a documentary series on Netflix called Last Chance You. Um, the first two seasons of it focus on uh, a football team uh, in the South. And last chance, if you know it, it is about junior college football, or at least the first several seasons were about junior college football. And it's about guys who come onto that team and they've washed out of big schools or they're coming out of high school. They don't have the grades to get to a big school. And so they go to a junior college so they can get qualified to go on to a bigger school and hopefully on from there into the pros uh, from there. And they're focusing on this school. And the coach of this team, he's one of those old school coaches that USA Swimming didn't want you to be. Um, you, you, they had videos, you know, when they were, he's talking with the team and they're doing practice and if they're messing up, man, he curses like a sailor and he gives speeches at halftime that would peel the paint off the walls and that's the kind of coach that he is. And he has this volatility about him that you just see throughout the season. And that volatility carries on into his players, and they interact with each other in that same kind of way, and the season actually culminates, it ends with a game in which there is a, someone on the opposing team says something that they shouldn't have said to one of his team members, and they react volatilely to that, and all of a sudden there is a brawl on the field, both the benches empty, there are, I mean, it is the, the worst fight that I have ever seen on a football field at the end of this game. And they are trying to separate. It takes law enforcement to get on the field and separate this. And it destroys that team's season. They were headed to the playoffs and maybe a national championship. They get suspended. They get kicked out of the playoffs. They have players suspended so that even the next year, they don't have enough players to put on the field to win games so they even have a chance next year. It destroyed not one season, but two seasons. And it was the volatility of the coach that fed its way all the way down. It set the course. It set the course. It's interesting, the beginning of the second season, there is a, a moment when he is talking about it and how ashamed he was watching himself on film in those shows. And that he actually had been to talk to his pastor to get some help to change how he was speaking and to change how his, he used his words with his team. Um, I'd like to say that he really succeeded in that. I would say he tried. Uh, by the end of that second season, I don't know that he really did succeed in that. But it sets the direction. The third reason we must control our speech is because it has the power to destroy. It has the power to destroy. It talks about the, the tongue being like a fire and how it can set things ablaze. And we don't have to think very hard about blazes. These, we, we've seen the destruction of wildfires out in the West um, so much on the news of late or down in Colorado, or down the, in some of the other southern states, the things have been so dry there, and those wildfires, it takes so little to, to start one of those, and the damage and the destruction that they can bring. It was a few years ago, but I was uh, down the Black Hills, and there was a fire there, and that fire was started by sparks from a chain behind a trailer, right? You've all seen it. You've been driving down the interstate, and that chain's hanging a little bit low, and those sparks, one of those sparks hit the grass in the ditch, 
the grass burned up and hit the trees, and thousands of acres of forest were burned by a spark off a chimney. We all know words can do the same thing. Our speech can do the same thing. They can destroy us. Doesn't take very much. A few misplaced words, a few words said in haste or in anger, and they can set your life on fire. They can destroy a relationship. They can damage a marriage. They can damage relationships between parents and children. They can damage relationships amongst families. They can damage relationships amongst coworkers. They can threaten jobs and livelihoods. It doesn't take much. Words can set things on fire. That's why we must control it. We must control it because it can destroy others. The things that we say damage other people. They can set others ablaze. We don't have to go very far again in this culture to see the power of words that that has and the impact and the damage that that can cause to someone else. We live in, in a world where we have become increasingly aware of the, the pain and the suffering and the damage inflicted by words, especially through things like uh, cyberbullying and those kinds of things that we see happening across our world. I recently um, watched a, a story about a court case in which a girl was convicted of manslaughter for texts that she sent to her boyfriend encouraging him to commit suicide. He was actually, he, was, he had been thinking about it, and he was, had gotten, he was going to do it, and he had gotten in a pickup. He was going to run uh, carbon monoxide into the pickup, and he was going to asphyxiate himself in that way. And, but he had actually changed his mind and gotten out of the pickup and the timing of the text show. He texted her and said, I'm not going to do it. I'm getting out. And she texted him back, no, no, you've got to go through with it. And he got back in the truck and died. And now she's going to jail for manslaughter. The power of words. They can burn other people. Deeply wound other people. We must guard our words. Our speech can destroy our witness. We talk about being witnesses. How much do we think about is what we are saying, is what we are doing, is if I'm going to win this argument, if I'm going to make this point, is that going to draw this person that I'm talking with closer to Jesus or not? What am I doing to my witness for Jesus Christ and the gospel by what I am saying? We must control our speech because words reflect our faith. Lastly, we must control our speech to be consistent with who we are. It makes the point here about fresh and salt water not coming out of the same spring. And then he, he, he talks about this, we cannot have praising and cursing coming out of the same source as followers of Jesus Christ. We are called to give praise and honor and glory to God and that everything that we do should be aimed at bringing glory and honor to Him. That includes our speech and our words and the way that we interact with other people, and that we cannot have praise and cursing coming out of the same source, that that should not be. Now, praise is that, that honor and glory we give to God. Cursing here, this is not swearing, this is not curse words, but cursing here is speaking ill of others. It is denigrating others. Because you cannot praise God on one hand and then denigrate the human beings which he has created on the other and to speak ill of them. That cannot both come out of our mouth. That is the point that he is making. 
And in fact, he makes it in such a way, he says, this cannot be. That Greek phrasing there, that that Greek construction, is the strongest possible way that he could phrase it. It's the only time it's used this way in the New Testament. And it is the strongest possible force with which he can say it. This cannot be that we would on one hand praise God and on the other hand denigrate and speak ill of those who bear his image. We are just not allowed to do it. We're just not allowed to as followers of Jesus Christ. How do we guard ourselves from doing that? Well, again, I'm going to turn to Paul David Tripp, and he gives a list of things that I think are very instructional and helpful here for us to think about. I could come up with my own, but I really like his. The first one that he says is the way that we do that, number one, I will treat every person with respect no matter what. No matter who they are, no matter where they come from, no matter how much I might disagree with them, I treat every person with respect no matter what. Second, I will intentionally do harm to no one. I will not use my words to seek to intentionally attack another. Third, I will take seriously the experiences of others. Now, that's not to say that someone's experience gives them a different truth or that two things can be true. There's there's one truth, and I don't want to go there. But I do want to say this, that that their understanding of that, their experience, may give them wisdom about how that truth works in their setting that you might not have. You need to be willing to listen to others' experience and take that seriously. I will respond to differences with appreciation and grace. I will look on others with sympathy, not apathy or antipathy. There is no way that I can look at another person. Every person that I look at, that I speak with, that I interact with, no matter how much I disagree with them, no matter how far I might see that they are from the biblical truth, that person is still a person who was created in the image of God. That person is still one whom is captive to sin if they don't know Jesus Christ and is deceived by that sin in their life, just like I was before I knew Jesus. And so I must look on them with sympathy. I do not get to treat them with apathy or indifference or anger. I treat them with sympathy. I will require myself to remember that other people are image bearers. Go back to that that line, that, that verse from Ephesians about building one another up. Every part of our speech is focused on how it impacts the other person. They are an image bearer. They are one who is made in the image of God and who deserves respect, and we must speak to them in that way. And lastly, I will think of no one as beyond redemption. I will think of no one as beyond redemption. Again, is the comment that I'm about to make, is what I'm about to say, is winning this argument, is making my point going to bring them closer to Jesus or not? And if it's not going to bring them closer to Jesus, don't say it. Don't do it. 
not worth it. The gospel is of more value than you winning your argument. Don't do it. Our words reflect our faith, and we must control our speech. So how do we do that? Is there any hope of doing it? James kind of at the end here says, no one can do it. Every kind of animal has been tamed, but no one has ever tamed the tongue. That's kind of discouraging, isn't it? <laughs> kind of a discouraging way to end it. There's no way you can do this. Well, I think what he's probably, hopefully it's a little bit of hyperbole, and he's saying that, because it is so hard. And we will all struggle with it this side of redemption. But we can and we should work to control. It doesn't mean we just don't, we just give up. So how do we do that? Three things I would give you. Number one, repent. Repent. That's the first step. Again, Paul David Tripp, I'm, I'm quoting him, and I love this quote. He said, toxic talk is never caused by the one you're talking to. It is always caused by you. Understand, nobody else can make you say anything. You chose what you said and how you said it. And if it's not in line with what God would want, gracious, for encouragement and building up, loving, pure, full of integrity and dignity, reasonable. If it's not those things, we need to repent of it. We cannot allow our society and our culture in the moment that we live in to normalize kinds of speech and kinds of interaction that God himself would not normalize. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong no matter what the culture says about it. And we would say that about a lot of things, and we would say, oh, yes, that's true, that's true. But when we come here and say, well, everybody talks that way, no, we don't have to. We need to repent of it. We need to acknowledge that it's wrong, and we need to repent of it. The second thing that we need to do, when we do it, we apologize, because that's the only way. That's the only way we bring healing and restoration back to relationships, to say that I am sorry and what I said was wrong or how I said it was wrong. Even if you're communicating truth and you say, well, that was, you know, say, I, I don't want to say that what I said was wrong. The truth is there, but you can still apologize for saying it in the tone and the manner in which you did. We apologize. We bring healing to relationship. And the last one is simply this, get help. If you really want to control your tongue, it's going to take somebody else on the outside helping you Keep in line with that. I'll go back to that football coach from last chance. He, one of the things he tried to do was he, he had his team hold him accountable, and every time he used a curse word, he had to put a dollar in a jar. There was a lot of dollars in that jar. Okay? I, I don't know if that was the most effective accountability, but find someone, find some ones who are around you, who know you, and say, in this year, I want my speech to be that which honors God. I don't want salt water and fresh water coming out of my mouth. I don't want praising and cursing coming out. I want only that which would honor God coming out and have them hold you accountable to do that. Give them the power to speak into your life. Our words reflect our faith. Therefore, we must control our speech so that we can be effective witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ the world and culture in which we live. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this tough teaching. God, I admit I fall far short of this. There is so much in my own life I know that I need to repent of in this, and I know we probably all have those things in those moments. So, Father, forgive us when our speech has not reflected what you would want. Forgive us for those moments. 
Help us to know where we need to apologize to make it right and help us to find those around us who can help us make sure that our words reflect our faith. We pray this in Christ's name.